Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome, this is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manishaw. I'm a writer, director, producer who's made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative, and I currently do sales. On this Thursday throwback episode, we're going to play our interview with Rick Bosner from way back on April 10th, 2017, on episode 97 of the show. He was the very first producer we had on the show, and he talked about how he chooses his projects. He told us stories about working on Fruitvale Station, which was very cool. And he talked about how he made a sustainable life for himself as a film producer by like going back between the Bay Area and Los Angeles and, you know, playing the game that way. After that, we play another round of the game. But first, don't forget to check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. Patreon is the way that the show survives, that it lives, that it thrives. Without our Patreon supporters, we wouldn't be here doing the show. So thank you all for supporting the show. And if you drop down $1.99 a month, you'll get access to a full back catalog of 350 so episodes that you don't have access to right now on iTunes. So if you want to hear the full episode with Rick Bosner, not just his interview, but the chit chat that Timothy and I, our old co-host did, then you can find that only on the Patreon page. But without any further bibble babble, here's our throwback interview with the amazing Rick Bosner. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on. <laughs> and Alric, now you have to say, I, Rick, you don't yeah. know how psyched I am that you're on the show. Yeah, I am. I'm like, Rick doesn't know how psyched I am to have him on the show because um, I never heard of him before. He sent us an email after one of our episodes, the crossover episode, and I looked him up and I was like, oh, yeah, you line produced uh, freaking Fruits at the Vale Station. Like, you're wor- working on all these other movies and you're still in the Bay Area, but you work in LA. Like, oh, my God, like, this is the perfect guy to talk to. Like, I can't wait. So. I'm stoked that you're here. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I heard that podcast when I was driving on my way back to San Francisco from L.A., you guys and the uh, the Just Shoot It guys, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the wildest episode. I really need to get in on this and explain, like, you can do filmmaking anywhere. I mean, you really can and be successful. It just depends on what your idea of success is, too. So, um, how, how did you hear, did you, had you listened to the Just Shoot It podcast before? Or had you heard of our podcast before? Or how did you listen to that episode? I had heard the Just Shoot It podcast before. Um, I'm actually friends with, uh, Oren's wife, Kara on Facebook. Uh, and I saw that they had this podcast a few months ago and I started listening to it and I've heard them talk about, you know, film, filmmaking in San Francisco and how that can be really difficult. And then I heard you guys come on. I was like, well, this is going to be really entertaining. And it was really interesting to see. I mean, those are dialogues that people in San Francisco and LA have all the time. And they are heated like that. It's just, you know, um, but I like to think I'm proof you can do both or you can do one or the other, whatever you want to do. I've done, I've done that too. So 
Yeah. And both you mean like live in San Francisco or live in LA, you can make it happen anywhere. That's what you mean by mo- by both? Yeah. I mean, I've lived I lived in San Francisco for years and only did movies in San Francisco. And I'm not talking I did commercials on the side, corporate videos on the side. I did movies. Or I lived in LA and did movies. Or I lived in San Francisco and LA and did movies. Like that's <laughs> it's just it's kind of a mindset. It's Wait what are you going to you didn't yeah. have you didn't have a full time job or anything. You supported yourself a hundred percent by movies. By movies, Whoa. that is what I have done. Mind yes. blown, mind blown. You're the first yes. guest we've had on that's actually made a living just by movies. Yes, that is what I do, just by movies. That's what I've done for years and years. So wow, that's awesome. How do we become <laughs> you, Rick? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, <laughs> no, you should all be yourselves. Everybody is their perfect snowflake. Um, right. right. Uh, well, I don't know. Where do you want me to start? This, like, how I got into it? Let, let, let's 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 yeah. Let's give an overview of who you are, how you got started, and and what and what kind okay. of work you well, do. Well, you know, I am just you know I come from the same place as like everyone else, Beaver Cleaver. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York in Rochester. You know, no connections to the film industry, anything like that. Uh, My parents were both in theater, uh, you know, like community theater and stuff. They were theater directors and all that. And since I was the age of like four, I was, you know, a child actor doing little things on weekends, going to sets and seeing set construction, see my parents direct, um, really just kind of being involved in that community. And it always, you know, I just absorbed it and loved it from the very beginning. So I've always known since I was that young that this is the career I wanted to get into. Um, So back then, even too, I knew, how the heck do you do that? How do you get to Hollywood? I'm so far from Hollywood. You know, it used to kind of freak me out because I wanted to do it so desperately. Um, And there were lots of things. I mean, I didn't know anyone. Also, you know, as you get older, you get into high school, you realize, okay, well, If I want to be a filmmaker, I got to go to USC, UCLA, you know, these big film schools. And I would freak out because I'm not a straight. I mean, to get in those schools, you got to be a really good student. I was not a really good academic student. I mean, it's not like it all came naturally to me. I'd get like, you know, B's and, you know, some A's and stuff. But, you know, I would have to work to get those grades, you know. Um, But after a while, I just realized, look. I can't, that's not going to be my road. That that can't be my road. There's got to be another way into this. Did you at least apply to those schools? Um, no, I, my parents took me to visit them and I looked at them and they were beautiful and amazing. And I thought I went to NYU. I looked, went to USC, UCLA, visited the campuses and thought to myself, no way. There's no way. I mean, he had like a 3.2 grade average or something in high school. It's like, I'm not going to get into that. (laughs) And the film schools are even more competitive. What am I do like what am I doing? That's not gonna that's not gonna be my road, you know? Um, so from there on it was like I have to set up a plan for my life to get to where I wanna be. And that's what it's been the whole time. And what was that plan? Well, that plan was, you know, basically, you know, after high school, uh I ended up uh I was still a little afraid to go I mean, I was young and still afraid to go to California slightly by myself. So I went to one semester at a school in Dayton, Ohio called Wright State University. I mean, it is I mean, if you think Rochester small, this is even smaller. And you know, has the teeniest film program. I was there for a semester and one day and I was like, This is crazy, what am I doing here? And one day a friend passed me this car uh, this uh, course catalog for a school called the Academy of Art 
college in San Francisco. And I was like, what's this? And I looked through it and I was like, what the heck? These are all like real like production classes. And I just, after that, I called my dad and was like, we got to go to San Francisco. We got to go look at the school. So we did. And I, you know, I kind of fell in love with it. And I'm more of like a hands-on, like put me into the trenches kind of guy. And, uh, and that's what I did. I went to, I went to school in SF and, um, and, you know, I did my years there and that's how I ended up being in San Francisco. I, yeah. I went to the Academy of Art also. And the okay. reason I chose the school as well was because um, they, they promised like hands-on filmmaking, like right away. Cause some of the other schools you had to wait like two years, you had to do a lot of you know, basic classes and film theory before you got a camera. But Academy of Art, I think you had like one semester of some of the basic courses, and then you you would start shooting stuff or editing stuff right away. And they had a bunch of equipment. Totally. So I was like, my my philosophy in high school was, no one's going to teach me how to be an artist. You know, I'm you know that I have to figure out myself. But if I have access right. to the gear, then you know that's the most important thing. I don't know how I feel sure. about that now, but that was my philosophy going into it. Right, right. Well, I mean, that was always my philosophy. I mean, they had the equipment, the the theory and things I needed to learn. I could go to Barnes and Noble and read all day, which I did, you know, and then I taught myself, you know, Um, I'd get out books and learn how to use a Bolex or even in high school, I did that. Um, So how am I doing this? You know, um, you know, I, I took college courses in high school on filmmaking and things like that, the stuff I really cared about. Um, and when I got to the Academy of Art, it's not like the courses are amazing or something, but we had access to so much stuff and I started to make friends where, you know, then we pulled together like two really cool shorts that I wanted to do and we shot them on Super 16 and, you know, um, and I got to branch out and meet the people at those USC schools and UCLA and all that stuff because those schools, it's about the network. It's about the alumni. It's about, that's what it's about. Well, it's also, yeah, going to those schools, you're already in L.A., right. and then the people that graduate there typically stay in L.A., and then they get out of the industry, and you're friends with them, and as they move up the ladder, then you're friends with people that are finding themselves in places in the industry, and that can help you mm-hmm. out. Exactly, exactly. So, did before we go to after what happened after you graduated college, did you always know you wanted to be a producer, or did you fall into that role? Well, I mean, I always knew that I wanted to be a producer director somewhere around there. That's, I mean, that's always what I wanted to do. Um, and I guess the thing that really kind of led me to producing was I had to make money. And also I, I had gotten fooled once when I was a kid, when I, when I was like 15 years old, I went away to, uh, the film and television workshops in, uh, in Maine. And, you know, it was, you know, a bunch of kids, they let you like make your own films and stuff. And when I, when I was there, I was making my movie and this guy was like, here's a microphone, like you can, you know, to, you know, use as a boom mic. And I'm looking at the microphone and I'm like, this is like a regular, you know, stage mic. It's like, it's not a boom mic. And I didn't quite know. He's like, no, it's perfectly fine. It's going to work. And I spent like a week making the short and then they screen it. We do all the stuff and the sound is just, it's like almost non-existent. And I was so angry and felt so Mm. deceived that I was like, I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm going to figure, I'm going to know all this stuff. I'm going to make sure I understand what this is. So people can't pull the wool over my eyes like that. Um, so that's kind of, 
what I went into, which is kind of like that James Cameron thing where it's like he has a, a card in every union so he can do whatever <laughs> he wants. He knows what it, what everything is. You know, it's like you can't you can't trick him. So um, that was my approach. So did you start finding uh, your producing kind of like feet in college or did it come after that when you like really discovered that producing was what you wanted to do? Um, it, it came in college, really. I mean, because... I mean, I was directing all my shorts because the whole idea was to direct something. But I knew if I wanted to direct it, I, I'm i the only person that's going to produce it and put it together. So I have to find money. I have to find a partner. I have to, you know, find all the actors and do all this stuff. But it's something that kind of comes naturally to me to bring people together and get them all on the same plane. And to find it's all about, you know, I mean, being a producer is kind of like being a therapist too and everything. I mean, it's like finding the right personalities that blend. Some people are not, you know, they're just not going to work well together. And someone can be amazing, but that's not the right person to have on this team, you know, of people. Um, so, you know, you know, with these shorts that I did in college, I mean, one we did for, you know, 10000 the other did for like 15000 and it was, you know, pulling money together from friends and family and other producers in the school um, and then, you know, getting every person in different classes, it was like, I want to be a sound mixer. I want to be a script supervisor and just getting them to, to come together and do it. So you leave college. Um, then what happens? Hold on. I want to, I want to ask that in a different way. You leave college and you're super confident. You're like, Oh my God, I'm the best. I'm, I'm so ready to work in the industry. And then what kicked you in the balls? My father, he, uh, <laughs> he goes, <laughs> I, it, literally, this is on outside of graduating in my cap and gown. And my dad gave me a check for like 500 bucks and was like, good luck. And I go, what do you mean? He's like, you have a degree now. Go get a job. And I was like, yeah, what? And he's like, <laughs> go get a job. He's like, I'll see you later. And it was, um, I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And all through high school, or I'm sorry, all through college, I had been doing you know, like cater waiter stuff. I'd been uh, a bartender and, a you know, doing that stuff at like a, uh, the racetrack, the horse racetrack and stuff. And I was like, well, what am I going to mm. do? Keep doing that. So if, <laughs> at one point, like, I don't know, like a, a month or two after I graduated, I said, look, this is what I'm going to do. I am no longer accepting money unless it has to do with my field. I won't accept it. I'm not going to be a waiter. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. I don't even want the money. And that kind of just pushed me to figure out how am I going to get into this industry? Um, so really it was like a lot of, you know, Craigslist searching, talking to people until I got to, I mean, like assist on, uh, you know, low level, uh, corporate videos, uh, you know, web commercials, things like that, and really start to, to learn the industry. And, and I was fine, you know, I was doing okay. And it, it was really, you know, trying to understand in my life too, what, what are the most important things in my life right now? And what do I have to have? Um, it's like, I don't need a, and I would think about this as like, I don't need a fancy car. I don't need to eat out at crazy, you know, five-star restaurants or whatever, travel the world right now. I got to figure out how to sustain as a filmmaker. So, uh, you know, I was like, well, I need a bed, I need a room and I honestly need a gym membership because it was like, I need to keep my physical health going. I, like that was something that was important to me at the time. And it was like, and it still is. It's like, I think that, you know, you do have to like take care of your body and yourself if you're going to put yourself through these kinds of, it's a stressful situation, you know? Yeah. Um, 
so uh, so that's what I did. And slowly, you know, I started to build and figure out, you know, I felt comfortable in San Francisco. Um, and I had moved to Los Angeles for like eight months. Uh, and one of the, I remember being a PA and one of the things was like, I had to wait in a parking lot to get cars and like wait for cars to come and cars didn't come like for the crew for like three, four hours. And I'm like, this is crazy. And I just, <laughs> I left. I was like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I was oh, like, no, shit. no. And the next day I went back, I was like, I, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. Give me my check and I'm gone because I was like, I'm not gonna, <laughs> that's not like what I, I'm capable of so much more than that. Um, and, and I came wow. back to San Francisco and, um, I, I mean, I got my feet wet in a lot of different places. I was a, uh, a producer's assistant at Spy Post, a photocam company, which is no longer in existence, but there I learned post R.I.P. Spy Post. Yeah. yeah you know, so. um, I worked at Point 360 and learned uh, digital distribution. I got fired from there for uh, writing screenplays at the front desk <laughs> on my own laptop because <laughs> I was like, I don't care. I just wanted to learn it for like three months and, you know, be done. Uh, wow. uh, and just kind of really trying to understand every aspect of it. And um, and then I started producing stuff and, and coordinating, you know, producing really low level things and figuring out who in town do I have to know to be able to get real work on feature films. So yeah, so yeah. think about this question for a second because it yeah. might take you a, a little while to calculate. But how many years did it take before you started producing the things that you wanted to produce? Like you um, add up all those Craigslist jobs and corporate videos and your time at Spy Post and Point Three Sixty, and then some of the other production stuff that you started to do. Like when did you get to the level where you're like starting to work on the stuff that you always dreamed of doing when you were in high school or college? Um, I would say well. From when? From after college? Yeah, starting from when you graduated. Uh, I would say it took like a good three years to do that. I mean, a good solid that's pretty good. three years of doing that. Yeah, that's And that even includes your eight months in LA? Yeah, I mean, that eight months in LA was important because it was a kick in the balls to be like, whoa, this is something different. You know, I'm from New York, I mean, upstate, but like, you know, my family's from Manhattan and all those things. So, when I went to LA, I was expecting it to be like New York City. And I got there and I was like, damn, this is depressing. Like, <laughs> like this sucks. And I, it's one of those things that grows on you after a while. But I thought it would That's be like New York and it totally wasn't. So You mean in terms of like city and culture and yeah. not relying on a car? Yeah, totally. <laughs> absolutely. Like, and like being able to bump into people on the street and see human beings and uh, not just, you know, cars and exhaust everywhere. You know, it's like... That, that was yeah. uh, that was just a shock yes. to me. San Francisco is much more like New York in that respect. New York is a much bigger city and like definitely has more energy than San Francisco. But in terms of like a kind of lifestyle where you don't need a car, you can walk around, you can bump into people. This is like a good city for that. Although the Just Shoot It guys say that for film industry people, LA is like great because you walk into a cafe and like everyone's in the film industry and you just run into people in those places. But it's not like on the street. It's like, I don't know. It's right. a different culture. It's a very different culture. Well, straight up. I mean, they're totally right. I mean, it is. It's you, you do. You meet people on the street. I think it's it's probably easier to meet people there. And but it's a different business. I mean, if again, if you want to make, you know, Marvel movies and do like corporate franchise movies and stuff, 
Yes, you got to go to Hollywood to do that. If you want to be a filmmaker and still make really awesome indie films, things that people see and everything, you don't need to go to Los Angeles. I mean, the world has seen Los Angeles. We know what it looks like. We know that's a story that's been told a million times against that backdrop. You know, it's when you see something different that really, I mean, the movies that hit are usually, you know, something that's in some other state or some other country. And then they get the opportunity in Los Angeles. And sometimes they bring it back to their home, too. It's like, this Los Angeles thing is good, and now the second one is so good, I'm going to bring it all back. You know, like M. Night Shyamalan, now he does everything in in Pennsylvania, you know, where he can be Mm -hmm. at home. Or you have, um, you know, Robert Rodriguez who goes and, you know, does his little time now and comes back to Austin. It's whatever you want. I mean... But you got to get to that level first, right? I mean, you you, you know... Like, that's, like, also the really small, um, you know, the, the the exceptions to the rule, I think, too, right? I mean, I think most people are still in L.A., aren't they? Yeah, they are. I mean, again, if you want to do those, like, big popcorn movies and stuff, or, like, you know, you're really trying to do right. $30 million movies, you know, stuff like that. Um, but it's not, again, for starting out and for getting a name, you don't need to be there. You really don't. It's... Yeah, you, but you need to be. I'd say you have to though be a part of your own film community, whether it's San Francisco or Nebraska or Ohio. I mean, New York. I'm I'm very much a part of the film com- community in New York now too because I do a lot of movies there. They everyone knows everyone, and once you're in it, you just know you know who people are, um, and it's easier to kind of get things mm-hmm. off the ground. So. And San Francisco's a great place to make movies. Yeah, I love it here, man. I love making making films here, and that's where I want to just make movies for my entire career if I can. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. I I always just keep on telling myself like if the work's good, like it does nothing mm-hmm. else matters. Like no one cares like where your zip code is if you're making good work. You know, it's just about you know getting that movie made and and making sure it's a good story to Absolutely. tell. You know, yeah, that something that speaks to you, something that's your you know that you can live with for forever because you live with these films for forever. You know, once you've made them and then <laughs> distribution and residuals, it just it goes on forever and ever. Yeah. The the most high profile project in your resume for, for us at least is Fruitville Station. Mm-hmm. How did that movie come about? Like, how did you get on that movie? Um. Well, that movie came about, Um. I guess I'd have to go back a little. It really comes to... I I made myself a part of the San Francisco film community before that, which means I did a movie called La Mission uh, with Benjamin Bratt here in San Francisco. Um, And there were so many people on that that are just, you know, uh, Debbie Brubaker, who is like, you know, just an amazing producer here in San Francisco for independent films. And honestly, when I was in college, I kept hearing her name and I was like, that's the person I have to know. That's the person I have to work for. And I had seen, I saw an ad on Craigslist for a movie and through, I mean, it was cryptic, but I knew it was for a position as a coordinator on that film. So I was like, I have to get that job. I absolutely have to go get that. And I did, I got the job and I was in, and I met all these amazing people on that film, which, you know, I created and nurtured relationships with over the years. So, you know, I, I had done pro- a lot of projects between there and Fruitvale as, you know, a coordinator, a UPM, a line producer, um, so that I had a name in San Francisco. So when 
Nina Yang and Forrest Whitaker came looking for a lime producer, I was one of the names that came up. And when they asked around about me, the community knew who I was. And, and I have to say, I credit getting that job to having so much support from the film community and people that championed me and said, yeah, Rick is the, the perfect guy for this job. Do you know who else they were considering? Yeah, I mean, I know I know who they were considering, and I know that they were considering, like many movies do, people from uh, from Los Angeles to to come and, and do the movie and everything. Uh, but I mean, it's, it just kind of worked out perfectly to to make this film. I mean, it was it was a tough. It's probably the toughest film I've ever done or had to make. So there was just a lot of elements for wow. very little money. So was it because it was a low budget? Was that why it was so difficult? Well, yes. On a scale of money versus the size of the project. Absolutely. And I mean, even starting that movie, we didn't even have all the money when we started that movie. So um, it was, Mm. yeah, it was, it was a scary process at times. Like, are we going to, is this going to work? Are we going to, yeah, it'll be fine. Um, And that movie got made again because of, this community, the San Francisco film community. And I don't know if you could even do that in Los Angeles. I mean, we had people, you know, friends of mine that were working at the same time on the Blue Jasmine uh, uh, set. And they would, after they got done on Blue Jasmine, just come over and help us because of the kindness of their heart, honestly. You know, I mean, because they were like, we want to help you. We want this to be good. Uh, And you don't always get that same support in in Los Angeles, it's more like people trying to step over each other sometimes, you know, it's so it was rare. It yeah. was a great, it was a great thing. So at the time that you were working on Fruitvale, did you know that it was something special? Did you, did you see the success coming? I did. There were a couple signs. I mean, definitely it was Ryan for sure. I mean, I read the script um, and I, I knew the film was coming uh, the production designer who was a friend of mine from college in Ohio had called me on the drive from, again, I was doing a commute from LA to San Francisco and said, I'm doing this project uh, about Oscar Grant. I don't know if you know about it and I'm going to be looking for crew and everything. And I was like, Oh, that's a great, that's a great story. And it's, I can't believe they're going to make that movie. Uh, Read the script. It was great. And then they said, Oh, I said, you know, who's directing and it's, you know, Ryan Coogler and he wants to meet you and stuff. Um, And I watched his short fig. Whoa amazing. I mean, you watch it short and you're just like, this guy's got chops. This guy has real talent. I mean, it's just like, it it was undeniable. And just sitting down with him and hearing his passion for it and his vision and how he thought it out, you just, you knew you were involved in something special. And I'm sure Michael B. Jordan didn't hurt also, like watching the dailies must have been pretty amazing because he's such a great actor. And, you know, he already had a little heat from the TV show uh, that he was on The Wire, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think everybody, I don't know, it felt like people were really excited for him too, even at that early stage. They're like, oh, this guy's going to be, going to be somebody. I mean, I think Fruitvale was definitely his like, movie that brought him his breakout movie but i mean mm-hmm. he was an excellent actor in it and i mean at the time too we were just so stoked to to have octavia come out and work for three days and she was this the sweetest most wonderful person to come and she just won her oscar you know so um yeah wow. it was right. cool. so i have a question about just producers in general because i'm looking at imdb and there's like so many producers and executive producers and associate producers you're the only credited line producer and it just 
clarification wise, like what do all these producers do? How involved are they? Like what's your role as a line producer? Like how do you distinguish all the lines? And I guess the, the follow up to that is do filmmaker should filmmakers even care about that stuff? Well, you know, it really depends. If if you're a person that's really into credits, then yes. And a lot of people <laughs> in Hollywood are into what credit I got, you know. Um, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, for, you know, a line producer and a producer, an executive producer, associate producer, a co-producer, it really kind of varies from every film to film, like the function of what you know, people are doing. I mean, some people might get a producer credit if they just bring, if they bring Tom Cruise to the table because he's their friend, they might just get a producer credit, you know? Um, now what they're trying to do now, I'm a part of the producers guild of America and, you know, now we have the PGA mark and it's really to try to siphon through all the BS to figure out who made this movie, you know, who was there from development to distribution, because again, you know, people also have this idea that either, you know, the producer is the person who has the money, like, like I physically have the money in a bank account somewhere, or I'm the person that is getting the money. Now, those are both true. They, I mean, they can be something for producing, but that's not the only thing that makes you a producer. I mean, you have to qualify for a million other things besides just money to be a producer. So um, that's a misconception people have. Yeah. And what does a line producer do? So a line producer would basically be, um, you know, somebody comes and says, you know, we want to make this movie for X amount of dollars. Uh, is it possible to do? And, you know, they'll create a, uh, a breakdown, a schedule, and a preliminary one, which obviously changes all the time, and then a budget, you know, based on that schedule. Be like, this is my plan. This is how I would do it. People look at it. Yeah, it looks good. It looks like it can be executed. Um, and that's pretty much their functionality of, you know, people look to those. These are people that know physical production because you'll have a lot of even yeah. very prolific producers that don't know physical production or executive producers who, you know, they know the financing end, but they don't know how the heck to do it. How do you make it? How do you put these things together? So when you got the call for Fruitville Station, they said, we have this amount of money. Ryan wants to shoot it in the Bay Area do you think it's possible? And then you put together a budget and a schedule based on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then truthfully, we didn't even have all the money yet, you know? So, I mean. <laughs> did you still, did you do a budget based off of what they thought they were going to get or what they yes, had at the time? I did. I did based off what, what, what our end game was, what we knew, what we thought we would do. So, and then as you get into production and you're not getting the money that you thought you were going to have, are you refiguring the budget, reallocating money to try to, make it for less. Yeah, I mean you're always the yeah, absolutely. Now we didn't have to do that on this. We did hit our end goal. We were totally fine. But oh, at the okay, time cool. it's like, is it coming? Is it coming? <laughs> is, is the money right. there? Like and that's But not, were you guys like thinking we're gonna shoot this one way or the other. We hope we get all the money, but even if we don't, we're just gonna make it work. Yeah, we're gonna keep going. We're gonna keep going. That was that was their plan and I, you know, supported them and like I said, that's how why we had so many people coming out to just help out of their the kindness of their heart to to make it happen yeah um so as a line producer after you put the budget together and all that stuff are you also physically calling and hiring all the crew is that also part uh, of your job it really depends i mean you you know the director you know will 
obviously it's like I'm not going to pick the DP if I'm the line producer. You know, the director is going to pick those people and right. we're going to see, oh, is it going to work within the confines of stuff? But a producer, an executive producer and stuff, they're the ones that are going to be, you know, basically making the deals, you know, with the talent, making the deals with the um, – you know, the crew and everything like that. I mean, cause what the line producer has done has created like a plan of attack, you know? Um, right. so, but they are, I mean, they're a person that's like physically involved, like the physical production of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you probably got brought some certain crew members, um, in the beginning, right? Like, th- like was the DP already chosen when you got on brought onto the project or was that something that you were involved in finding? No, I mean, Ryan selected the DP. Ryan picked the DP. He he knew right, who right. he wanted and he knew who, like I, like I had right. said, he knew who he wanted for the production designer because she called me before I was even on the movie and told me about the movie <laughs> right, coming right, to town. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, and these things get put together all kinds of different ways. So there's no, I've never had a movie come together the same way ever. I mean, I, the whole thing, like line producer, producer, everything, like what's everyone doing, you know, like I think. That's like a, such a gray area, you know, and, and on the movies that I've been on, I've seen that gray area um, be crossed over a lot between the different producers, you know, but it, t- to me, it just seems like you come up with a system that works and then that's what you do, you know, whoever, whoever your producing team is, you know, like whatever they're doing, like they just allocate the responsibilities in the best way possible. So, I mean, we don't really need to know the details of how it worked out on Fruitsdale Station, but... Yeah, I mean, because that's basically what you're saying. Like, it, you know, it just works out one way right, or the other. It does, right? yeah, and every and that's why. And honestly, too, I mean, the producer, like even the producers' guild, is, is it's an association. Association. It's not a a union because the lines are so blurred. Too, I believe, is part of that. But now, you know, having that mark and trying to decide who's getting the producer credit because that is like the credit. You know, they're trying to say, well, these are the people that made the film. One last thing on that, like I've, I've heard, I don't even know if it's somebody that we've talked to on our podcast or if it's just other interviews I've heard on other podcasts, but someone was saying like, you know, there's like, you know, 10 producers, but there's usually just one or two people who are doing all the work. And uh, that seems to be a theme that seems common <laughs> throughout my discussions mm-hmm. with people. Yeah, I'd, pretty, I'd back that up. without saying but as a line producer if you're not the one that's like making the deals with the crew then what do they need uh you in san francisco for can't they fly a line producer up from la if all all you're doing is managing the budget well i mean a line producer does make the deals with the crew but they're not um you know like on on fruitvale or something you know the line producer isn't making the deals with the you know, the lead talent or something, you know, that's really going between the producers and the lawyers and the agents and the managers and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, we're still making the deals with, you know, below the line agents, you know, for even, even, you know, the DP or something like that, but the DP's already been selected. Like I said, it really depends. Example, Fruitvale, a lot of those people, you know, like the, the, well, not a lot, but like two or three of them had already been on, you know, associated with it for a while before yeah. I came involved. Um, but then we hire, you know, we bring everyone else in. So um, it really depends. Everyone right. is different. What value did you bring to that project then? <laughs> what value did I bring? Um, well, I, I think I brought... A, I mean, I'm not going to talk about myself like this, but it's like no, you should um, do it, do it. it. This is like um, this is a this is a tough question to answer. I, 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 if you ask me the same thing about like what my role is as a producer at the ad agency, I would have a really hard time telling you what value I brought. But you know, 
Try, right, try it. Right. It well, might, you might I have mean, to talk yourself up a little bit. That's okay. <laughs> well, definitely. I mean, I know the project had <clears throat> tried to get off the ground a couple times um, in different ways, but line, other line producers couldn't figure out how to do it for the amount of money we had, which was, this is out in public or it's been for years. So, you know, it was $900,000. Now, how do you do that? There's a BART station. There's, you know, there's violence there. We're shooting in some of the danger, most dangerous parts of Oakland. Uh, we're going to, you know, <laughs> San Quentin prison. It, anyone would tell you you're crazy. That's not realistic. But really what I brought was my uh, knowledge of the Bay Area, my expertise in production in the Bay Area and knowing and hiring the right people, hiring people that I knew weren't just paying me lip service and saying, oh, I can do it. But then they're going to stick me with some crazy bill that is like, we didn't agree on that. So I was very careful and I am with every project of who I'm hiring, you know, who, who in these positions is really being true to their word about what they're going to do and isn't going to bone me later. Um, and we did. And we did it on schedule, on time. You know, Ryan said to me too, when we met, he's like, Rick, there's this one thing I really need. And I was like, what? And he's like, I got to shoot it on film. It's like, for real? <laughs> for real. And he's like, yeah, man. Can't we Classic. do this? Like, and Rachel Morrison, can't we just do it? You know, and they came up, Rick, we got to do it on film. Can't we do We'll do it on 35. I was like, you guys, I can't. There's, there's no money. I can't do that. And, you know, and I worked, yeah. worked the numbers, talked to Kodak. And, um, I was like, look, I will do film, but we have to do super 16, you know, because you can get, you get more bang for your buck with super 16, a roll of 400 feet on super 16 is like 11 and a half minutes. A roll of four, 400 feet on 35 is like three and a half minutes. So it's like, we'll do yeah. super 16. And we did. Um, but again, I mean, it sets in that panic of like, well, you can't overshoot your days. You can't, you gotta like, <laughs> yeah. get, you gotta mm. get it. Um, but it was so worth it to go through the stress of that because it looked awesome at the end of the day. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Whose idea was it to bring the visual effects to the Academy of art? Um, I can't remember anymore who that was. I don't know. I don't know if it was me or if that was Ryan, if he had already spoken with them earlier. I mean, they had done so much. I mean, they did some great visual effects, um, and they had even done, there were a couple animated sequences that happened in the beginning that they did that got cut out of the film. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I, th I think he, I think Ryan had gotten in touch with them because of Beasts of the Southern Wild. Um, right. But then I brought Ryan to Skywalker to do the sound because I was like, these will be the, the best people to do it. I mean, I, I mean, and they're so indie film friendly over there. Um, so, you know, again, just... I don't know. This is just one, <laughs> nice. one of many stories. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So is the, is the goal for you through your career to like get to the point to be a producer that can put a project together, that can find the money that can get the actor attached to a script and like make a project go. Well, I do do that now. I mean, that's what I do. I mean, that's what I spend all day, every that's day awesome. doing. Um, and it really, what the real trick now is, is to f find the right price point to make it at, you know, mm -hmm. and who to put in it. And I mean, there's so much, it, it is the film business and there is a business aspect to it. Um, and not all people are, 
you know, calibrated to, to do that end of it. Some people are more just like the artistic side of it and that's totally fine. Um, and if you are more of that side, then you really have to find somebody to team up with that is excited about the, you know, the producing end of it because it's right. freaking hard. You know, it's a hard, right. it's a hard thing to do. So how do you get to the point where you have yeah. access to money? Again, knowing people, I mean, so you guys, so much of the money, and that's the thing that people don't understand is like, like making, make, making movies in the Bay Area is stupid. Well, do you realize that the money that is funding those films is coming from San Francisco? I mean, and you don't have to look hard to find out where it's coming from. It's coming from Silicon Valley. I mean, they'll literally write the names of the people who are funding these projects in Los Angeles. And it's like Silicon Valley based company, blah, 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 is putting $10 million mm. in money's right here, guys. <laughs> you know, it's all right yeah. here. But are you meeting them through your filmmaking? Or are you meeting them just at like parties and stuff? No, I don't. I mean, that's, that's a misconception about it. I think if you know, if people think like, well, you got to be at in LA to do the parties or do the things. No, I mean, that's a good way to socialize and like, you know, whatnot, but that's not business. I mean, I'm not going to make a deal with somebody that's like, you know, three sheets to the wind, you know, about some project I want to do. I mean, I know people do that kind of stuff, but it's really about getting to know people in a, you know, in a professional setting. I mean, you see someone, you want to talk to them, like say something interesting to them, go support other films. I mean, Honestly, people want to make all these movies, but do they support the filmmakers? Like, when was the last time you guys paid money to see a movie for a hundred thousand dollars? That was a movie that was made right. budgeted for a hundred k. Now, I have done that. I definitely have, and I can rattle off ones that I did do because I try to support movies like that and see what are these people doing. Um, yeah. But when people have grand, you know, illusions of doing you know, oh, I'm going to make this movie and it'll be huge. Well, do you support those people? You know, like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. So it's a good know. point. It's interesting. Cause, um, I, I do a lot, or I used to do a lot of video production work in Silicon Valley with, uh, some venture capitalists and, uh, you know, people like that. And, and I, and for like years, every venture capitalist that I would be interview or shoot, I would ask like, Oh, like, Film investing, film investing, like, oh, do you have any idea? Like, who, who does film investing? Whatever. And like, everybody I'd ask, all these top VCs would just be like, I have no idea. I would never invest in a film. I don't know anybody <laughs> who would invest in a film. And like, that was like the answer that I've, that I've always gotten. And I've had the line to like some big VCs and like people who've actually invested in movies and, and they're just like, oh, I don't do that anymore. Or, oh, I only invest in movies that my family are involved in, blah, 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 like mm -hmm. things like that. And, uh, so I guess it's all about just finding the right people and the right companies, you know, and having the right intros to the ones who want to do it. Absolutely. I and I mean, through, it's funny, it's, this works at every level. And even what you're saying, oh, I only invest in movies my family is in. I mean, I've seen it too, where it's like, oh, okay, I'll watch a movie and I'll see a certain actor and I know, well, that person's related to that person and this person's a producer that's how they got some money right uh. there. Like literally, and this is, I'm talking really big right. movies, you know, that we've all seen. So it's like, yeah. I mean, it happens at all levels. Um, there's all kinds of, you know, tricks and uh, ways that films get funded. Well, I want to nice. know what the landscape is in your mind, like the independent filmmaking landscape. 
what kind of budget should independent filmmakers being should should they be going after and um like what kind of budgets are making their money back yeah because because what we've been hearing from everybody is like just make it for as little as possible so you can recoup on your investment but uh is that is that what you think too or is there a better way to go about it it depends it all depends on the type of movie that you're trying to do if you're trying to like bust out a movie to get it out there then yeah, do it for as little little as possible. If you're trying to just like understand how to gain control of your own, uh, you know, film or career or whatnot, then yeah, do it with a small crew. Really intimately try to understand it. If it's a slightly bigger project, where now micro budget, I can everyone has a different interpretation of this. I consider a micro budget under a hundred thousand dollars. Now, if you look, if you Google, like right now, like micro budget, you're going to see like Reservoir Dogs or something, you know, like that to me is not a micro budget. (laughs) I mean, I know it was like a million or whatever, but it's not to me, that's not a micro budget movie. That's like a legit, like low budget film. Um, And I think you have to try to understand, are you doing a micro budget movie? Are you doing a low budget film? Micro budget, do it for as little as possible. Low budget film, try to add some legitimacy to it. And even like Fruitvale Station, you have to understand a a nice healthy chunk of that was given to us by the San Francisco Film Society, which is a wonderful organization here in the Bay Area that funds movies that would not normally get money. I mean, they gave us a post grant and I believe it was the development grant too, which is a good chunk on a million, on a million dollar film. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know where what what else we want to cover with Rick, but I have a few questions. Um, just sort of, kind of relating to uh, our lives as indie filmmakers, and like you know, I'm sure people listening to this are like, "Oh, that sounds awesome," but like you know, as, as me as a filmmaker, like trying to get my my project off the ground, like how do I get started? Like like how do I approach producers? How do I find producers? Like what's who's the right producer for me as a filmmaker trying to get my movie made? You know, these are some of the questions. Right. That I have. Well, I guess it kind of depends on what is, you know, again, is it a micro budget? If it's a micro budget, go out with the people, you know, you know, I, that's what I did. I made a micro budget movie for under $30,000 and you know who I got to produce it was a guy who was PAing for me in school because he really mm-hmm. wanted to learn and he had access to everything I needed to make it equipment, insurance, all kinds of stuff. And I was like, I'll teach you how to do it. I'll teach you the ropes if you produce this and, you know, we'll do it together. Great. It worked out. It worked out really good. Um, But then if you're going to do something low budget, I think you have to really look at, you know, it can't just be any old producer. You know, if I'm making a historical drama, I'm not going to ask, you know, somebody who's produced a, a million only horror movies to do it. You know, just because maybe they, you got to find, you got to find the right team of people to work with. Um, And if you're, if you have like no connections, no anything to no, you know, no, no connections to the film industry, then you have to work within your community to find out who are the people that are, you know, moving and shaking and, you know, maybe reach out to the big organizations and apply to like, you know, the blacklist uh, the Sundance Labs, I mean, the San Francisco Film Society, anybody who lives here and is not trying to be involved with the San Francisco Film Society, that is the easiest in because you're here, you know, and they are connected to everything else. I mean, if you're in Los Angeles and you don't know anyone, go to Film Independent. When I lived in LA, 
for those eight months before, you know, I came back to San Francisco, I got a membership to film independent. And I went to every single meeting, listened to every panel. Like I didn't know any of the people there. And some of the people there were like really prolific people. It was just, you know, just absorb all the information you can. So, um, but to get your film off the ground, I think, I think there's a lot more out there than people realize. You just have to not look at it like at this straight on way of people think, well, I gotta, I gotta like get an internship at Fox and then I gotta be an assistant for, you know, whoever, you know, it's, there's so many ways to get into the party than through the front door. Yeah, I think all the things you're saying make sense. And I think that a lot of filmmakers know all these avenues, like the kind of expected avenues, Sundance Labs and San Francisco Filmmaking Society, where we struggle is we're not making the kinds of movies that those people are interested in. Like we're making genre films, horror or sci-fi. I've I've applied to, to filmmaking grants here in San Francisco. I've applied to Sundance Labs. They want nothing to do with me because I, I'm not making Fruitville Station. Right. And so as being like a straight suburban white male that's making sci-fi movies, like what avenue do I have other than to just go figure out a way to make a movie for like $100,000 and try my best to make my money back? Are there any other ideas you have, or is that really my only option? No, absolutely. I'd say if you want to, if you want to, you know, make more genre type pictures, there are plenty of people that do that. I mean, tons of people that do this, especially you know in LA, especially here. I mean, again, I know if you guys, I mean, the Butcher Brothers. I don't know them personally, but when I was coming up, I knew who they were. I mean, they were making movies the same yeah. time I was, and they did pretty good. I mean, I know the market is different than that; like, it's not the same kind of thing, but they did it. You know, I mean, it's possible. And yeah. even for movies we've done here, it, it, sometimes it's easier to get people excited about investing in a movie that maybe is a horror film and they've never invested before if they can understand, well, horror movies make money. And I mean, you know, if a 19-year-old Sam Raimi can raise, you know, $500,000 with his friends from dentists and things like that, I mean... That's, that's, I mean, I read that book when I was a kid and I went out to my dentist and asked him for money straight up. Mm -hmm. I was like, give me money, <laughs> you know, like, and he still, I mean, he said something about my mom the other day and she told me about it. Cause that was like, that's what you gotta do. You gotta, <laughs> I think asking for money is the hardest thing. And, but oh, yeah. if you don't, I, I, I really believe again, if, if you don't believe in the project, if, if you don't give the, um, the impression that that you really do understand your material and you have to do it. No one else is gonna. So right. um, that's what I would say. Just, yeah. I think know. there's this dream that we have as, as directors and writers that we're going to find a producer that just is going to come and save us. And we're going to show it to them. they will be like, Oh my God, this is the most amazing thing ever. Let's go raise a million dollars right now. I actually had this experience with Debbie Brubaker. I thought that she was going to come save me after I met her. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to get the screenplay done. I'm going to show it to her. She's going to be blown away and my career is going to take off. And then she's like, yeah, well, let me know when you have the money. I was like, oh, wait, it's not going to happen that way? Oh, that sucks. <laughs> so, like, I think that, right. you know, part of the thing, I love your story about um, using your PA to produce your movie. I think you have to rethink the way that you're getting your movie done. It's not that somebody's going to come save you. It's not that you have to find the person that's, like, several steps ahead of you to, to swoop in and, and save your ass. It's more about finding a way to, to make your film 
And and you're right. If you don't believe in it enough and you're waiting for somebody else to like get that passion to help kind of propel you forward, it's probably not going to happen. You have to believe in it so much that you're going to do stupid things like talk to your dentist about money. Totally, you know, and it's like, you know, and that PA, again, that PA I produced with, he went on to, you know, he produced a short that went to Cannes after that. He oh, wow. he UPM'd a documentary that just premiered at Sundance. I mean, he's doing amazing. And, you know, it's like, and I think part of it too is if you're supporting other people, if you're giving people an opportunity, if you want to see other people succeed, I mean, I do believe in the karma of it all. It'll all come back to you. It'll all feed back, you know, um, whereas other people that may be taking advantage of you know, situations and stuff. You have to be appreciative of the people and the think the resources you do have to make these films. So, mm-hmm. so are the films that you're producing now, are you working with first time filmmakers or are you only interested in filmmakers that have made a feature before? Like what kind of projects are you looking for and what kind of things are you getting involved in? I mean, I've been, I mean, I'm involved right now on, you know, many different levels. I mean, with projects with, you know, producer or directors that it's like they're, you know, third or fourth film, or it's their first movie, but they have some kind of, you know, mark in, you know, the entertainment industry, or maybe they're, you know, like Chris Kelly was an amazing, he's a writer for Saturday Night Live, and I read that screenplay, and it was just so touching and moving, Uh, I really wanted to be a part of that movie, and it, you know, obviously it turned out great, and Molly Shannon won her, um, her uh, independent spirit award for the role and everything. Um, And that was a great one to be a part of too. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm looking for stuff that speaks to me and for every producer, it's going to be different. You know, there are the guys, you know, that do like horror movies. They want to do like genre stuff totally, or like Steven Seagal stuff. Totally cool. You know, Um, for me, I I look for something that kind of just touches me on a human level. And I feel like is going to put out a message in the world that I don't know that this is something I want to I don't know <laughs> just relate to <laughs> you other just people feel it, right? you know you got to feel it well other people yeah. but what I'm saying is like some people want to be entertained like just strictly entertained I want to be yeah. thrilled or or cry or romanced yep. or whatever it is um so it's different yeah 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 and how are you finding these scripts or are are these scripts finding you uh, the scripts will find me. Um, I mean, I heard, I know I, I listened to some of the back episodes and it's a, a, a cover cold call cover letter kind of thing has never worked on me. I mean, I, I, <laughs> that was one of yeah, my questions. No, I never, I mean, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I probably get about like 10 to 12 of those a week of, of like the, that kind of stuff of, wow. and it just doesn't work. Now, what will at least make me take interest is maybe it's the same exact person, but if they see me face to face and and they can like engage me, if they're like an engaging person and their story's engaging, then maybe I'll go a little bit farther with it. And I'll be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Well, send me what you have and I'll look at it, you know? Um, it depends. And it can take, I mean, I've had people kind of do like that for years <laughs> until it's like, oh, I finally wake up and look at it. I'm like, Oh, this is cool. This is a cool project. I'm I'm glad you kept on me yeah. and now it's something I want to put together. So, you know, it's one of those things. Right. So as as filmmakers, do you think cold cold emailing, reaching out to producers that way is just a waste of our time that we should be putting our energy into to other ways to get our movies made? 
I would. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think that's a really tough route. You know, I would work with, I don't know, any, I would just try to find like personal connections to people, you know, where you can relate mm-hmm. to them on any kind of human level. Because at some, I mean, if I'm getting that many, then how many do you think, you know, Netflix is getting and, uh, you know, Lionsgate and all these people, you know, it's like yeah, tons. <laughs> I, I, I just started cold emailing like maybe three or four weeks ago and uh, I got derailed because I was working on some other projects. So I've only really sent out maybe 10 to 15 and obviously no re- response from anybody. And, uh, you know, I had this big plan of like just going forward and just sending like, you know, 10 a day or something like that and just really focusing on just putting my movie out there. And uh, after talking to you and some other people, it, it kind of feels like maybe that's just a waste of time. And I should just be like figuring out like my micro budget movie to make because the movie I'm trying to make is a low budget movie and I, I can't raise the money on my own. You know, like it's just too much for me to manage. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, maybe I should just go out and like, I know there's a certain amount of money I can raise. Like I'll just make a movie for that amount instead and just get my feet wet that way. Right. And then, and not try to like, you know, spend three years of my life trying to raise money that that I might not be able to ever raise. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and there are so many different ways you can do it. I mean, look at, there are lots of like tax incentive states and stuff. I mean, I know people that have even gone back to, you know, I had a friend that went back to Chicago to make her short in, you know, and a short is what, you know, like $20,000, but to get the tax incentive, to take advantage of it and get a little something back. Um, You know, it's, there's possibilities. So what is your advice for, for filmmakers? Like somebody who's just trying to get their first indie feature off the ground. Uh, they have some connections, but maybe their connections aren't working out. Like, what do they do? Um, on the micro-budget level or the low-budget level? Um, well, let's do both, but let's start with the, the low-budget level. Okay, well, with the low-budget level, I would say, you know, kind of what is your end game? Is, is, you, is your target audience, is it more of a genre picture or is it you know more of a Sundance like art, art art house kind of a thing I mean if you're really saying something that I think speaks to society and has like a really uh, a message that can be shared with the world I would say try to if if you don't really know anyone or anything try to get some clout by being in one of these programs or getting involved um, or if and those are really competitive too. I'm not just saying, oh, well, apply and you're going to get it. Well, <laughs> yeah, like, it, yeah. like you might, you might not get it. And if you don't, well, then who the hell cares about the program? Look at movies that have inspired the thing you want to make and reach out to those people. How do you connect with those people? You know, and you know, the producer. You have a, a movie that's you know, like Fruitvale Station, and you want to find a producer that's done something in that vein well reach out to those people and maybe you don't need to ask them to be a part of your movie maybe you just need to pick their brain you know that's part of it because they may say you know i didn't uh you you know say you talk to a producer on fruitvale and they say you know well now i'm doing you know some humongous you know eight trillion dollar movie but you know my assistant (laughs) is trying to get into it maybe talk to them so maybe now you have the producer's assistant who's been through the Hollywood game, doing those things, producing your film, you know, you have to take a risk as well as, you know, the other, you know, this kind of has to be a two way street, you know, you have to be willing to risk it with someone else, kind of like I did with having a PA produce my film. And you don't know, they're going to have connections. 
You just said that you wouldn't answer a cold email. So how do I come to you and say, hey, Rick, I have a film that's kind of like Fruitful Station. I just want to, I'm Bay Area filmmaker. I want to know how you guys got it done. Can I sit down and have coffee with you? Would you respond to that? Yes, I would respond to, and I do. I do this very often, and I believe that filmmakers need to do it. I was taught this early on, is everybody has value, and you have to pay it forward. And it's very different. If you're asking me to produce a film or be a part of a film, then can I have, you know, 30 minutes of your time, and I will buy you a coffee, and will you sit down with me? Very different, and I always do do that. And um, gotcha. one of the things mm. that really spoke to me about that, you know, when I was in Academy of Art, I was shooting my uh, student film on Treasure Island, and we were in the offices, and, you know, we're setting up for a scene, Super 16, I'm really stoked, and this dude comes up to me with glasses, and he's like, oh, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm, I'm shooting my student film. He's like, oh, that's really cool. He said, what's it about? And I tell him and everything. It's like, that's awesome. Well, I got to go. I got to get back to work. We're about to roll camera. And I was like, oh. And he goes, my name's Chris Columbus, by the way. It's like, oh. <laughs> it's like, uh, hi, I'm Rick. And he's like, well, Rick, what are, you, what are you doing like later? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, are you guys like rapping soon? I was like, uh. And I'm like, oh my God, why? And he's like, well, if you are, like, just come hang out. Come over to the set. Come, come chill. And I was like, uh, yeah. So like, you know, we, we got our stuff done and you know, he brought all of my student crew onto the set of Rent, and all of my keys got to meet all of, like, their their key on the Rent set, and I, you know, got awesome. to hang with Chris, and just, and something Chris said to me is, like, Rick, you know, all these people here, I mean, these are people I went to film school with, like, keep oh, the cool. people close to you that, yeah. you know, you trust, and, and always pay it forward, always, you know support those people i mean nice. you'll and you, it'll it'll work in your favor and i was like oh yeah it took that with me so yeah awesome that's really cool yeah yeah man and did anything happen after that did you keep in contact with him mm-hmm. yeah i've seen chris over the years and you know it's great and again he's a filmmaker in san francisco here in the yeah. off, here that's in, what's out awesome. in north beach you know so yeah um he's doing it yeah all right, so you answered the low budget. What about the micro budget? If you're trying to get a micro budget movie made, then what would you do? Okay, if, and this is what I did. Again, other people may have different ideas. I did do a Kickstarter, but I strategically pl- planned the Kickstarter for while I was shooting the film. So I thought to myself, okay, the movie, I want to make a movie for like less than $30,000, and I, I'm not putting all my money into it. But I was like, I got I to gotta show that I believe in myself and I got skin in the game. So I did. I put in half the budget and then I was like, all right, well, then I've got to find, you know, how I got to find other people that will believe in me. And if I've put my own money in, that shows that, you know, I believe in the project. And I did. And I found three other investors to put in money to equal what I was doing. So I put in half the budget. Um, And then while we were, uh, I, I planned out a Kickstarter of how I wanted to film it. And while we were shooting the movie, at the end of each day or at lunch, we'd be like, all right, this is a segment of the Kickstarter campaign that we have to film. Uh, Actor, like, I'd literally have the actor talk (laughs) about your experience and blah, 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 and what it's like. And we'd do it on the set with everything going around. And at the end, right when we wrapped, that video was ready to go out and start getting a little bit more money for the, um, for editorial. So that's a great idea. So. And that that you're all in budget on that film was thirty. Yeah, it was it was thirty thousand dollars plus like the Kickstarter, which we got. I think That's I was at, I can't 
the video is still up there. I was think I was asking for five or something and we got seven. Um, and, mm. uh, and some of the people that donated a thousand dollars, I, I mean, there were a couple people that did, I've never met them. Um, oh, wow. I had, wow. they, it came from emails where, um, I just kind of had, you know, touched base with them at one point about a project or whatnot. And, and they gave me a thousand bucks. I mean, that's amazing. Really nice. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. So, so did that uh, movie go anywhere? Did that lead? To yeah. Anything? I mean, it, it played and we did the, you know, we played the festival circuit. It's up. I mean, we, you know, it was on uh red box and this was back in 2011 when we made it and it was on the streaming services. It's still up on, I think iTunes and Amazon, I want to say. Um, and again, it was a personal project. That was a project I wrote about my own life and my experience and what I was feeling. And it wasn't something I ever wanted to do. Like, I didn't want a ton of money to do it. I wanted to go out and just make it. And I, I shot it when all my friends could come out and do it. Uh, it was the week before Christmas, which was dead. Nobody's working. And then it was, and then we took a hiatus and then we came back the week after New Year's and we shot the second week. So it was like 10 days. Um, and then we did two days later on. So, um, you know, it was 12 days total of, I think of, of shooting of how we did that. So nice. What's awesome. the name of this film? It's called falling uphill is the name of it. Falling uphill. We'll, yeah. we'll include a link in the show notes so people cool. can check it out. Very cool. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So nice. I, I feel like your story sounds like too nice and neat. I didn't hear, hear like yeah. the, the struggles, <laughs> like, whoa. I guess I'm just looking for like what are some of the stories of the, throughout the years as you've built your career up that you doubted yourself or doubted you're doing the right thing or did that ever happen or has it just do you feel like it's been easy that you've just had this tailwind pushing you forward this whole time? It's, n- it's never been easy. It's not easy now. It's never it's never easy. It's just not an easy road. I mean, it's 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 a marathon. It's a, it's a marathon to be a filmmaker. And if you go into it, like it's a sprint, you'll burn out, you'll give up, you'll die. You can't go like that. It's, that's not the way to do Mm. it. Um, I, I have the advantage of knowing literally that I wanted to do this since I was a child. And that was the only thing I never wanted to do a single other thing, but do this. So I spent my life working to get to this place and you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I know not everybody has that, um, but it's never too late. And I say that because, you know, I've made movies for, you know, I've produced films, whether it's Ryan, who was what, 23 at the time, or uh, another friend of mine, Arnie Grossman, who did a movie, we did a kid's movie called The Boat Builder, and he was first time director at 81 years old. Um, and that man is just, he's an inspiration because it's not a huge movie, but it is, you know, he had written that book like 10 years ago or whatnot. And he had the tenacity to just keep going, to just keep doing it, to get there, to make this thing. And that man was out there on set every single day doing it. I mean, can you imagine your grandparents doing that? Cause I sure as hell can't like, (laughs) man ballsy like amazing that's like i just think he is uh a cool guy and uh i hope i can i'm even alive doing something like this then uh yeah 
It's amazing. So, uh, how's your financial situation? Are you struggling to make ends meet, or you live a comfortable lifestyle? Are you rich? Or are you just rolling in money? No, no. I'm, <laughs> I mean, I I live a comfortable lifestyle. I mean, I just you know, like I said, I I I don't know. I it depends what people want. I think you can get to this place in life where you let your possessions and your stuff rule you where your life is leading you instead of you leading your life. Um, and I have fought that my whole life. You know, I have struggles, like my biggest struggles are like, I don't like to own personal things. Like I don't like to own stuff. <laughs> I mean, just stuff, stuff bothers me. Um, so <laughs> if <laughs> I just like to purge all of the things in my life, cause it literally means nothing. The stuff that means something to me is relationships and, you know, having a, feeling safe, having a place to sleep at night, my health. Uh, and I feel like I'm able to do that. And I don't feel a burden every day of, of something like that. But again, it's takes, it took years to struggle to do that. I mean, like I'm saying, it's not like my father was some Hollywood studio mogul, you know, he was accountant in upstate New York. You know, my mother was a teacher in upstate New York. Like, that's not, you know, it's, it was a, it was a, a, a build to get to where I've, where I am now. So. Yeah. Do you have a side hustle? Like, are you driving Uber or are you renting your house at Airbnb? <laughs> no, Anything I've never, never. need to know about? Like, to, to be honest. No, it's no, all filmmaking. All filmmaking I, money. It, That's it awesome. It totally is. No, I never have. I've never done that. I mean, no, I've never Ubered. I don't think anyone wants me to drive them. I've crashed too many cars. Um, uh, are you uh, Are you staying in shutters when you go down to L.A.? In shutters? What do you mean? Yeah, shutters in Santa Monica. It's like the oh, fanciest hotel. No, 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 no. I'm not. No, I I have a place that's in West Hollywood. Um, that I mean, for years too, I've, um, you know, I would sublet places from friends and stuff. Um, people would go out of town. I'd just sublet their place and whatnot. But after a while, it just got too to be too much so yeah i have my own place there and i i split my time i mean i like to come back to san francisco to detox from that i i like having san francisco to get away from the just 24 7 craziness out there um but i love la too i mean and i'm there a lot and i you know i have an office out there uh and i'm a part of the film society here um so it's uh it's great it's exciting so you do you would you nice. say it's like six months in San Francisco and six months in LA? Pretty much. I mean Roughly. it's not like I group it like that. It's usually like I'll like <laughs> <laughs> I'll do maybe I'll do like two weeks in, in one place, like two weeks in LA, a week in SF or two weeks in SF. It just kinda depends what's going on in life. Or I won't even be here. I mean I I sometimes am in, you know, New York shooting a movie for four months, so I'm in neither place. So right. you know. You just bounce around where, where, where your work takes yeah. you, basically. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. But do you think you – could you make a living in San Francisco, just San Francisco, or do you need L.A. to keep going? Mm-mm. I could have – I mean, this was a, uh, something that I – that really pushed me towards L.A. Um, corporate videos, commercials, all that stuff – uh, I was making a fortune doing that. Like it was easy to do. And I've seen people that are filmmakers get stuck into it because the money is good. It pays even better than it does in Los Angeles. And Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it really does. I mean, it, it 
Yeah. And I said to myself again, that I had another moment, just like I did from bartending to the other thing, where it's like, I'm no longer accepting money for corporate videos or commercials. I will not accept it. I will only accept money for feature films. And that's when I made the, wow. the clean cut. And I was like, well, this is what it, this is what it's going to be. So. So you just have to make the decision for yourself. It's like, you just have to like, you yeah. know, put the time in, put the work in, um, go after that dream. And then, just don't don't take anything else. I mean, I feel like, you know, that sounds easy to do. I know it's probably very it's very difficult to get to that level. Yeah. Like I mean, I know I can't turn down like I do corporate video, like I'm not turning down that money, you know. Right. But uh <laughs> but yeah, maybe one day I will. Well, I think a lot of people <laughs> wouldn't too, and it's not to say that there's a right or a wrong way. It just depends. I mean, for me, I never wanted to be uh ruled by money and and when I think of, you know, things that inspire people and people that you know, whether it's in filmmaking or what, whatever. I mean, you know, somebody who really inspires me is Bill Cunningham, who is a fashion photographer. And I don't yeah. know if you know who that is, but like... Yeah, I watched that documentary that about him. It's amazing. So inspired, like, like that... Oh, yeah. gosh, amazing. That is like kind of where my heart is. Like that kind of feeling that he has about fashion photography and not wanting to be you know, uh, held to the money of it all. Like you can't buy him off. Like that's, I just think that's amazing. So yeah, he has, yeah. he has integrity. Yeah. Okay. Nice. So before we started recording, you were telling me that you heard our episode with the just shoot it guys and you felt like you wanted to come on and give a positive message that you don't have to be in LA, that you can be in San Francisco. You can make it work wherever you are. Do you feel like you've said that or is there anything else you want to say? I do. I mean, I just, you don't have to be in San Francisco either. You can be in Ohio. I mean, I've seen the film, there's a film community in Columbus, Ohio. I've seen the film community in New York, in upstate New York, in, uh, you know, in Kentucky. What about Florida? Yeah, Florida too. They have My, a crazy like South, South Florida. Somebody wrote me an email asking <laughs> yeah. about the film community in South Florida. Like he was saying that like it's dying or there's like not many people. It's like, there's gotta be, there's, there's communities everywhere. You're just not tapped in yet. Well, maybe they heard of this little movie called Moonlight. I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, right. I mean, yeah, there you can do it. I mean, you can make movies like that. So, and there are people that there's an infrastructure there. I would say, you know, Louisiana, there's, you just got to find your people, find your, your tribe. So. Yeah. Who was that guy? Uh, Evan Kidd, who we had on the show yeah. many, many episodes ago. He was from North Carolina, yeah. I think. And uh, he was talking about his communi film community there. And it sounded like they're doing quite quite a lot. So, yeah, I just feel like, you know, that's what that's what I've been we've been saying, I think, you know, this whole time is that the communities exist around you. Find the people who want to make movies and, and don't let your your location be like you know a hindrance to to making your art or making your film yeah. you know? i feel like if you're not tapped into the community it feels like there is no community but once you're tapped in and you start meeting people you realize it's a lot bigger than it is like for years and years and years i didn't feel like there was a san francisco filmmaking community but now that i'm more tapped into it i'm like oh there's so many people and each every day i'm meeting new people it's just like it feels like it's expanding but actually when you talk to people they've been here forever you're like oh i just didn't know them Right. So you just yeah. Have to, you have to get in there. Get your hands dirty. Yeah. I mean, it worked for George Lucas, right? I mean, he did it. <laughs> you know, it's uh, and Francis and everything. Um, you know, I would say if you just want to try to break into your film community, a real easy one is go say hello to your local film commissioner and ask them yeah. what is going on and how do I PA 
on anything, literally anything, like on a music video, on whatever, because you know what? People from out of town will come in and be like, I have $10,000 and I'm trying to shoot a music video. Do you know somebody? Uh, yeah, I know this kid. He wants. He just wants to do something, you know? There you go. So, yeah. I mean, I think I really I literally think they're everywhere. <laughs> like, I really feel like anywhere where there's a major city, there's a film community. You just have to find it. You yeah, know? absolutely. Um, this, yeah. You know, there's ways. I mean, like I said, don't always try to go through the front door. You know, like there are always mm. different ways to get right. into the party. So, yeah. I feel like I'm gonna stop my my cold emailing um, t- tirade at this point. Dude. I think it's uh it's time to put put it to rest. Yeah, think about all um, the time you're gonna save now. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, this is something I I used to do when I first got started. Was what you were saying, Rick? Like, you know, call people up, ask ask to take them out to lunch, ask them to take them out to coffee, get them on the phone or whatever. And I feel like. Maybe that's more, more, you know, worthwhile. And it's kind of like what we're doing with the podcast is like having people on and talking to them and getting their stories. But, you know, I think that's probably more enjoyable and more fun anyways to, to do it that way than, you know, trying to, you know, like, I don't know, beg someone to, to read your script or, or whatever, <laughs> right. you know, whatever the ask is. Yeah. And I mean, so. if, and if you're willing to take a risk on somebody else, then, you know, they'll take a risk on you. So maybe going out to the most prolific, producer or casting director to do your movie isn't the right thing like i said they may have an assistant or somebody that's worked under them and you know they don't have all the credits yet it's worth it for them to do it but they have the connections so just you know think outside the box is what i'd say yeah yeah exactly well thank you so much for reaching out to us and offering to come on the podcast this is amazing we were so psyched to hear from you like yeah this is the perfect guest (laughs) well i just i hope i can uh help some of your listeners or make people feel like there there is hope and you can you can have a career as a filmmaker wherever you are forget our listeners you helped us no we don't care about the listeners we only care about ourselves (laughs) and you helped us well i think this is a very encouraging episode and probably more encouraging than than a lot of our episodes um have been i mean i don't know i always feel encouraged by our conversations because i feel like every time we talk about something even if the answer isn't clear like i feel like you know you know, excited by it and rejuvenated or whatnot. But I feel like after talking to you for an hour, like, you know, you've been saying nothing but positives and like you can and you should and just go for it, you know, rather than like, oh, you'll never make it or whatever, you know. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I hope the audience feels excited, too. Cool, guys. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If people want to get in touch with you, or maybe you don't want them to get in touch with you, like <laughs> where, where can they find you? Do you have like a Twitter account or do you want them to go to your website or you just want them to leave you alone? <laughs> they can, they can go to my website at bluecreekpictures.com. Okay. Um, and there's information, there's ways to get a hold of me there. So, and if you yeah. guys send a cold email, just know it'll probably get deleted. <laughs> but if you want to send oh. them an email and just say, Hey, thanks for coming on the podcast. And we really appreciated the conversation. That would be awesome. Like, yes, it'd be very cool. Yeah. yeah. Be kind. Don't be opportunistic people. <laughs> uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at MMIH Podcast. And if you like the show, tell a friend, help us get the word out by leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher as well. Uh, thanks, Alric. Totally.
And thanks, Rick. Yeah, really thank you guys. It. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. Glad to be on. We'll do this again next week. Bye-bye. Take care, man. Bye. Okay, Liz, you probably don't know who Rick Bosner is, but, you know, he is a really cool producer. He was a line producer on Fruitvale Station, among other projects. But if he was on the show today, what would you ask him? Would you ask him anything? I'd talk to him about that whole, like, it's not bi-coastal, it's, it's same coastal, but just like <laughs> that one-hour flight difference of travel. I travel up to the Bay Area a lot to see family. I go multiple times a year and we do that six hour drive on the on the five quite a lot. Mm, I know mm-hmm. where to get lunch. <laughs> so I'd be curious if it feels like the commitment or lack of commitment to one location <laughs> has been beneficial. I think it has. I phrased it in a really horrible way, but I think the lack of commitment has been beneficial and I'd like to hear confirmation of that. You framed it like the 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 quintessential the worst way. like <laughs> you know uh, Angelino that was like the exact way that like somebody from LA <laughs> would course, phrase it you didn't you did lack of commitment you didn't commit you didn't, you didn't come here you're not, you're not one of us you're not like, one no, of I'm, us he's, he's better than us let's probably be honest he's better than all of us okay well without any more wait what would you ask what him? I asked you Rick? have to ask him oh something. I would ask Rick about yeah if 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 his films have been still sustaining him if he's like still you know making it happen as a producer and like basically since we talked to him last like five years ago like what movies have he made and like what has he what has changed his process as a producer from you know 2017 to 2023 you know what we should do i don't want to oversee this so we're probably not going to do this <laughs> but we should just send an email to the people that we do throwback episodes for and say can you record an answer to this one question uh, and we ask them the question uh, and then we share the answer that would be fun yeah but, i love it but not now that sounds like too much work I but mean, maybe in the if, future if anyone wants to do it for us, Rick is a homie, so he would totally do it. He's also like, um, like you know, we're not good friends or anything, but he did meet with me in person after we had him on the show, and he gave me a lot of great advice on the alternate, and then one of our makeup artists is good friends with him, and so like you know, he gave some well wishes when we were making the movie, so it was very sweet. But yeah, I mean, I think Rick would probably, as long as he wasn't shooting a movie at this exact moment, he'd probably help us out. Yeah, it's just, a, we'll put a pin in this idea, but it might be interesting to check it. Check in with these people, right? Yeah, absolutely. But yes, yeah, should, I, should I go? Should I, go. Am I going? Go. Okay. <laughs> we have a segment that people, I think they like. I don't know. I like it. So I've assumed that other people like it. It's called The Game. <laughs> and in The Game, our producer, Eric Toms, gives us an indie film challenge, a quandary, a quagmire, a situation that could happen, theoretically, on an indie film set. And he asks us, Alric Bursell and Liz Manishal, how would we handle this theoretical indie film quagmire? And here's this week's quandary. A hot new screenwriter has been making waves on the festival circuit, winning screenwriting competitions and having theaters perform their plays. They're starting to gain real heat and catching the eye of producers, agents, and executives. The writer contacts you and reveals they've been a huge fan of yours for years and years and want you to direct their next script. Thanks to their popularity, financing could be far easier than your previous projects. You read the script, and it is without a doubt the best script you've ever read and will make for a great film. The only problem is the male lead slaps the female lead late in the script after discovering or double cross. Even if the film is good, this could tarnish your reputation as someone who isn't tough enough on violence against women. 
The writer is emphatic and won't move forward without the slap. Do you, A, do the film as the script is written and weather the storm that may or may not follow after its release? B, turn the film down completely. C, agree to do the film, then film the scene both ways on the day in the hopes that you can talk the writer out of the slap in the edit room. D, other. What do you do, director? What do you do? And really briefly, because I didn't mention in the intro, Ulrich has not heard this question before, so he's answering it blind. Okay, now, what do you do, director, Ulrich? Yeah, I don't know. Am I really crazy? Like, is, you know, having a character hit a woman in a movie, like, not allowed anymore? Is that like a blacklist situation? Because if I remember correctly, Raging Bull had a nice scene where the woman, the wife gets, you know not brutally beaten or anything, but like thrown around and whatever. And, you know, that's Martin Scorsese. And like, I think he won an Oscar for that movie. So I don't know, maybe that's the eighties versus now, but I am a firm believer that just because a character does something in a movie doesn't mean the artists or the filmmakers are bad people. Bad characters do bad things that we don't believe in. I mean, I, I will say that if it was a rape in the movie, like I don't like rape in movies. I don't want to like, you know, have to make a movie that has a rape scene in it unless it's like absolutely like has to be part of the movie. And I believe in it for whatever reason, but like, you know, I, I was a part of a script last year that had like multiple <laughs> one, one rape in it and references to, uh, to at least one or two other rapes. And I was like, we're taking the rapes out of the movie. Like there does, these don't need to be in the movie. Like there's no, there's it's not it, there's not a good like it, there's no point there's no story reason why it has to happen like let's just how about we you know write some characters that have like a little bit more power and like aren't such so victimized terribly but yeah i basically feel like yeah oh, oh a man slapping a woman in a movie that's okay i'm not gonna i'm not gonna fight on that one i mean unless it like doesn't belong in the movie for some reason and it's like not important to the story or it ruins the story or it ruins the character or whatever. Like if it's not good for the character or the story, then I'll fight against it. But if it's good for the characters and the story and it makes sense and it's like an important part of the movie, like, yeah, we can do that. Like, I mean, <laughs> characters kill people in movies. They're not like being like, Oh yeah, there's too much killing. Let's get rid of that in the thing. I just think it's too much. Like, and also I love violence in movies. I'm, I'm a big action movie fan. <laughs> I mean, not saying that I love women violence in movies, like man on woman violence, but I'm just saying like violence is a part of film and sometimes characters do things that are very bad and then they need to do them in order for the movie to work and for the characters to work and for things to have impact. You know, I, I'm not the hugest fan of, of it's it The Duel. I think it's called The Duel. Have you seen that with Matt Damon and uh, Ben Affleck? And uh, It's not The Duel. It's, is it The Duel? I've seen part of it. I've seen the scene. Yeah. It's terrible, terrible, terrible to watch. Like We were basically watching the movie, like Beth and I, and then that scene comes up and Beth was like, ah, turn it off. For not watching this the movie last anymore. Duel. The last duel. The last duel. duel. Yeah. I watched it on my own later. And like, you know, they show the, I think it's three times that they show the rape scene or from three different perspectives, or is it just two different perspectives? Maybe it's just two. I only two. saw it from one perspective, so I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
it might be just from two. Yeah, I think it's just from two. And it's very interesting, like how one character perceives it and the other character perceives it and like, you know, the way that they think about it, you know, and then like, it's all fucked up with like the way the law worked back in those times, the medieval times are like, yeah, women's women can be burned. They're your property. So yeah, you know, she might get burned just for speaking up about it. It's really fucked. But anyways, getting back to the question, yes, I would go forward with the scene as long as I thought it was good for the movie and good for the characters and wasn't something that I disagreed with story-wise. But if it's great and beautiful and makes the script amazing, sure, let's do it. And, you know, I, I trust the human race to know that I'm not a wife beater because I shot a scene with a that has a character slapping a woman. You go, Liz. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I 100% agree. I feel like the expectation was that I'm supposed to say something like, no, all women should not be harmed <laughs> in front of a camera. And it's true. They should not be harmed in actuality. But we've become incredibly sanitized as a culture in terms of the projects that we greenlight, avoiding controversy. What happened to the antihero? What happened to complicated characters who do good things and bad things? What happened? I mean, that is what people are like. I don't know one person who is free from sin, right? Free from doing something, except for Ulrich no, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm totally fine with it. And, you know, my, one of my favorite directors is Lars von Trier, who everyone hates and thinks is a misogynist. And he, yeah, I'm pretty positive he is. But I think he's provocative and interesting. And I like watching the characters go to extremes in his films. And I like his formal experience experimentation as a director. So it's like, I I just want to be provoked when I watch content, right? So I'm on board with all of that. And I'm totally okay if people get slapped or if violence is perpetrated against them, if it has to do with the story. I'm with you too. Eric does want me to read this follow-up though. Okay, let's go. So the question is based off of the 1981 film, The Verdict, starring Paul Newman and directed by Sidney Lumet, who's like, I, I think people call him Sidney Lumet. I should probably just say Sidney Lumet. Where the cast crew and Newman's team argued whether or not Newman's character should slap Charlotte Rampling's character for fear of what it would do to the box office returns as well as Newman's image. Ultimately, Newman decided to perform David Mamet's script as it was written with his character slapping Rampling after discovering she double-crossed him because it was the right decision for the character. Rampling agreed and the scene was shot. The film went on to make $54 million off of its $16 million budget. Interesting, you know, interesting that people were concerned back in 1981, and I'm sure they were concerned before that about depictions of violence against women, but things are complicated. Life is complicated. Doesn't Paul Newman slap a woman in The Hustler, too? <laughs> You're like, let's just count yeah. the times that Paul Newman has slapped women. I feel women. like he did that also, so I don't know. I mean, whatever. I mean, I feel like... That feels like something that I would... I, I'm surprised that that's from 1981 or 1982. Like, I figure, figure, feel this is, like, a much more modern concern. But, mm. you know, I mean, I guess it's good that people are worried about these things. And I, I feel like, you know, sure, like, I, I don't want to, like, be, like, promoting violence against women or anything in my movies. But, like, I, I still think, like, you can have characters... You, you can have movies where violence is depicted against women as long as it's not like overly gratuitous, you know, like I think there's a, there's a definite difference between like, you know, just like completely, I don't know, like, I, I mean, horrific violence happens against women daily. Why not? I mean, yeah, I don't think we shy away from from things that actually exist. 
in yeah. real life. I guess I'm just curious what your opinion is. Like, what what is the difference? Like, is there a line between glorifying violence and just having, like, violence in a movie as part of the entertainment of the film? Right. I'm trying to think of a movie that glorifies violence against women. I think I'm... I seem to zero in more on sexual exploitation than physical abuse Mm -hmm. in that like if a female character is unnecessarily wearing a bikini in a scene, I don't know why that's happening. It doesn't have to do with the scene. And then I'm like, okay, well, that seems like unnecessary glorification and an attempt to provoke cheaply, right? To Mm -hmm. provoke someone in in a cheap manner. I don't know. I think I think if you have a background character and it's a woman and she gets slapped and it's a and it's like a scene that's not remarked upon where you could take it out and the film would still exist and would not be impacted in any way. I don't know if you need to have a scene of of that woman being slapped. I mm-hmm. I think that might be unnecessary glorification of right. uh, violence against women. But if it's the main character and she double crossed him, and you want to show how he would respond to someone double crossing him, that seems integral to the plot. That doesn't seem like right, right exploitation to me. Well, Tarantino like comes up as like the main abuser of this, you know, in, in a lot of ways or pe- pe- people who point him, point at him for this, you know, and like de- death proof. Like, I don't know if you see, know that movie. I love well, death proof. yeah, I but love like it. the open, the whole opening thing, it's like that guys like brutally kills those four women. And then like, you know, the other half of the movie is him trying to brutally kill these other four women or, or whatever. But he also has women who are empowered, who are, who are taking revenge as That's characters. True. Right. I mean, yeah, Exactly. He's just a violent filmmaker. That's just his style. Yeah. I'm okay with that. But I, I know what you're saying. And then like at the end of Once Upon a Time in America or the West or Hollywood. Oh. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yeah. where like, I mean, I, I love that scene and sequence. I think it's great. And I, I can, you know, I, I get where he's coming from and I get why I loved it so much. And I also understand where people are like, oh, it's just too much. Like, you're like you're 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 relishing in the killing of these characters, and it's like well, that is the point of that whole scene is to relish in the killing of those characters, and then some of them are women, but like I don't know, I feel like that's what he was trying to do. That's like the whole point of that sequence is like yeah, let, let's create a universe where these terrible people you know get their comeuppance versus you know. I don't think it's relishing if it's just a filmmaker executing something beautifully, like choreographing it shooting it well lighting it well like that's like i i'm just thinking about how we started off the conversation and the earlier episode this week that came out on monday where i was like i'm thinking of really gross ways for my main characters to die you know yeah they're women it's violence against women it's super gross it's gonna involve like menstrual blood and bachelorette party <laughs> toys and like super gross yeah. things yeah or super beautiful amazing bodily fluids that should be exalted but i'm calling them gross for the sake of this conversation but just acknowledging that like it's compelling it's provocative it gets people out of mm. their comfort zone like it's killing secret cows like those things are interesting as long as you execute them with a thoughtfulness i worry about the films that show a man slapping a woman and it's brutal and disgusting and it's done poorly and there's no reason for it yeah right so i have the reason 
Exactly. Well, with that, you can always send us over. Are we going to get canceled? You can send no. us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast. I'm always worried about being canceled. To podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to our bonus episode editor, Jeff Reimout, who also just is our general editor. He's bonus and non-bonus. He's wonderful. Thank you, Jeff, for doing the editing. Thanks to our producer, Eric, for being awesome and just doing great producing. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to you next week. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.